Once I discovered that and then started to do the deep dive, nothing shocked me afterwards. I mean, it became more appalling, but it wasn't any more shocking because the, the shock happened on that high level and then becoming appalled afterwards and then indignant and then enraged and then, oh my goodness, what is happening? And that narrative thread was very important for me to weave into the story. Who were the Black Angels? How did they contribute to finding the cure for tuberculosis? And why haven't we heard of these courageous Black nurses who broke barriers and transformed our profession? Let's talk all about it with author Maria Smilios, right here on episode 454 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you, your personal and professional development, your career, and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And if you'd like to help other people find the show, please consider leaving a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts or even Google, Amazon, or Spotify. And share the show from any app where you happen to be listening with anyone who you think might enjoy it and benefit from it. And if you'd like to become a patron, you can give as little as $2 a month at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith to help support the show, keep the lights on and keep the show moving along and forward into the future. I appreciate you all so much. And I'm so glad that you're here with us. And speaking of being glad that someone is here with us, I have Maria Smilios here. She is an incredible author with an amazing book that I just finished reading not a week ago. And you can read all about it in the show notes and find links to the book. But Maria, I'm so glad you're here. And there's a lot to talk about. We don't have that much time. So my first question is, how did you discover the story of the Black Angels and what then led you to say, oh, I'm going to write a book about this? Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. I found the story in 2015. I had been working as a science editor for Springer Science and Media, and I was editing a book on orphan lung diseases. When I came across a line that said the cure for tuberculosis was found at Seaview Hospital. I love New York history. I love stories about disease. And I became curious and I began Googling it. And an article came up about the cure at Seaview in 1952 in Staten Island, which I lived in Queens and I had I grew up in Queens. I had been to Staten Island exactly twice. It mm -hmm. may as well have been in another continent. And but beside that article was another article about a woman named Virginia Allen, who at the time was 86, and it said she belonged to a cohort of Black nurses called the Black Angels. And then I really began, became curious, and I Googled it, and nothing came up, and more Googling produced nothing but frustration. And a couple of days later, on a lark, I called the Staten Island Museum, and they told me, oh, we do know Virginia. As a matter of fact, she's going to be here next week. I mean, sorry, uh, she's going to be here next weekend talking about the Black Angels for, an, for it, an exhibit we're doing because we're having a grand reopening. So I went, I met her, we started talking. We met for six weeks in Harlem at a little cafe. 
in Harlem Hospital. We talked about everything except the Black Angels. She loves books. She loves culture. So we talked about New York City in the 40s. We talked about Maya Angelou's or Neil Hurston, the mm-hmm. exhibits at the Schomburg where she was volunteering. And then at the end, she would always leave me with this little kind of anecdote about the nurses and tell me to find out more and come back. And that would have been fine if there were archives, but there were no archives on the nurses at all. And so what I would do was I would come back and tell her, hey, do you know that your Aunt Edna, who is one of the main nurses that starts the story, was working during the Great Depression? And let me tell you the conditions under which she was working. And so we talk a little bit about that. And this went on and on. And then she invited me to her home in Staten Island. And Virginia lives in the restored nurses residence, which sits in the middle of the abandoned complex, which is Seaview Hospital. Mm. And so when she walks out of her house, she's staring 500 yards in front of her at the ruins of one of the eight pavilions. There are only four standing now. And then adjacent to that, in this jumble of trees and weeds stands the skeleton of the children's hospital where she worked. And then if you walk down these meandering pathways, you start to see all the other buildings. Some are in ruins. Others have been repurposed. For example, the pathology lab, a part of it is repurposed for the Staten Island Ballet, but the downstairs of it is not used. And so you're walking through this kind of past in the present because there's people living in this restored nurse's residence. And that's where she lived when she first came in 1947. As a matter of fact, she lives on the same floor in a different apartment. Amazing. Did you feel like a a, like a medical historian and detective while working on this story? I mean, there is so much you needed to uncover because there wasn't, sounds like unearthing the information wasn't easy. So the nurse's story had no archives. Mm-hmm. Um, I started by interviewing Virginia and she gave me the name of a, another family, Missouri's family. And I spoke with them and they gave me the name and slowly but surely I started gathering all these names and I would talk to anybody who had anything to say, even if they said my aunt was a patient at CVU for two months, I would talk to this person. And so I built all of the nurse's story. The nar- I didn't go into it like traditionally thinking this is a plot summary, this is a narrative arc. There was no narrative arc because I didn't know what they were going to tell me. And so their story became structured after years of interviewing, just listening to family members talk to me about their loved ones. And I built the narrative arc. So really the, the, the nurse's story is a collection of voices that I was able to piece together from them. Dr. Robichek's son is alive. He gave me his father's papers, which were extremely, not just useful, but kind of historical documents because they're the beginnings of drug trials. And I was able to trace down two patients who are part of the original isoniazid trials. They were still alive. And so they told me their story. And whatever was corroborated from Robichek's story and the story of the cure, the race for the cure, there was a lot of secondary evidence, uh, uh, sorry, secondary um, archives on that. But the nurses had nothing except for a lot of the Black newspapers. Exactly. And you you mentioned the Black newspapers a lot throughout the the book. Mm -hmm. They were extremely media savvy. And I would say that if this were happening today, these women would be 
Twitter, like on Twitter or whatever platform you want to say, tweeting out what was happening in terms of advocating for themselves and better working conditions, because they use the press in a very similar manner. The minute something went awry or the, the you know, an, an incident happened. So for example, in 1937, they walked into the new dining room and they saw these placards on the tables that said reserved for whites. Mm-hmm. And 350 nurses walked out, they refused to eat. And so then somebody called the press and it was in the newspaper the next day. And that following day, the mayor, the commissioner of hospitals went to meet with Lorna Dune Mitchell, who was the supervisor of nurses at Seaview. And there was a public apology. The placards were taken off and they were promised it would never happen again. And so that's why I say social media. It was just, it was that quick. Amazing. And so they they knew how to harness the power of media, but they also had their eyes set on long, a long game. You know, they knew that it was going to take sustained effort. But I kind of deviated from the point. They so there were th- those records. The stuff that was written about the nurses in the newspapers was I was able to corroborate a lot of the things that were happening or build his, build out historical moments in the text. Mm-hmm. Speaking of historical moments. Why was the hospital staffed almost entirely by Black nurses who came from the Jim Crow South? What what was the mechanism that got them from the Jim Crow South to Staten Island? So sometime, CV was built in 1913. It was built by the city of New York specifically to house, quote, what they said were the deserving poor of New York City. Um we come to think of deserving poor now as people who are not immigrants and people who are not African-Americans. So originally it was built to house a certain population of people. It quickly became known as a pest house that really what it was was a clearing house for people in the Lower East Side who were mostly immigrants and people in Harlem who were mostly African-Americans to be warehoused and they languished there until they died. And so Sometime in 1929, about, what is it, maybe two, you know, it was 25 years after it was built, white nurses began leaving. And that, and their reasons varied. It was the end of what many considered a glorious era, the roaring 20s. There were lots of opportunities for white women, white working women, to have jobs that wouldn't kill them. They could be secretaries, librarians. The commute from Manhattan to Staten Island was grueling. It took four hours round trip. They required a train to a ferry to a bus. Seaview was isolated on a hilltop 400 feet above sea level, way away from the port of Staten Island. Staten Island was this agrarian, bucolic place, the complete opposite of Manhattan. Manhattan, I think, maybe had a little over two and a half million people. Staten Island had like 450,000. Mm-hmm. There were cows that roamed. There was no cure. There was no remedy. This is pre-antibiotics. So the a simple staff, I don't want to say simple, but you know, a staph infection, which is easily treatable, treatable now, would kill you. A strep infection would kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who had an existing condition, you got sick, it would, you know, TB was TB is a deadly disease. And, and I think people don't realize that it's not just a disease of the lungs. It affects oh, no. yeah, the bones, 
They can eat, eat at your brain. It's the microbe is so beautifully rendered. It is designed to torture and kill slowly. Mm-hmm. It gnaws away at muscles, at tissues, at vessels, at bones. It collapses your spine. It turns mm-hmm. kidneys into these little shrunken nodules. Mm-hmm. And there's the, even the character in the book, not character, the gentleman in the book who he had TB of the tongue. Yes. And it was absolute torture for him. Um, having TB of the tongue and this enormous tongue choking him, being fed through a nasogastric tube, and and one of the points here that that you made in the book is that you know the Jim Crow South wasn't really allowing women, black women, to really accomplish a whole lot. It was really a difficult time down there. You had the KKK, you had a lot going on down there. You know, you had, of course, there was segregation in the North, like you just pointed out in the dining room at Seaview Hospital in Staten Island, New York. But down in the South, it was it was amplified. So I know you have a passage in the book that says a little bit in terms of telling the narrative of kind of like what was gained and what was lost by nurses who decided to leave their, what you might call their ancestral home in the Southern states and go North towards something, some uncertain future. So could you read us that little passage? Sure, and just for a little brief context, um, black nurses were not allowed to work in non-black hospitals. And at the time there were about 250 black hospitals versus 6,000 white hospitals. And white hospitals chose to remain understaffed rather than staff black nurses. And so there were hundreds of black nurses who were un or underemployed. One of them was Edna Sutton. This is Virginia Allen's aunt. Hmm. Virginia Allen is known to be the last living black angel. She's still alive, she's 92. And so this passage that I'm going to read, Edna is, down south, she's graduated from a training school. So it it just means that she has a training certificate. Um, she could not get a job. So she took a job as a clerk. And she her family goes north in 1925 and leaves her in Savannah with her younger sister, who's 20 years her junior. So her younger sister is nine at the time. And she's been asked to take care of her sister. Her parents are older. Her father is in his 60s. The mom is in her mid-40s. They're not in very good health. And they go to live in Pittsburgh and they leave Edna down there. And Edna really, what she wants most in her life was to be a surgeon. That's what she wanted. But she doesn't give up because her father, who was an enslaved man, he leaves the, he walks off his plantation in 1899, reinvents himself in Savannah and teaches her to dream big. And mm. so she still has this burning desire to have a professional life. And to give something, a life that is better than hers to her younger sister. And so she gets this offer to come to Seaview. It's during the Great Migration when African Americans are leaving by the dozens. And so this is the passage that when she gets this. The offer from Seaview was also a call, an invitation to walk away from the poverty of her youth, from the stacks of paper in her office from West 38th Street and from a place that demanded she submit. Over the years, she'd heard enough success stories of black people who had migrated north and carved out a better life. Quote, I make $75 per month. 
I don't have to mister every little white boy comes along, end quote, one migrant wrote. Another talked about the integration of schools, quote, my children are going to the same school with the whites, end quote. And others talked about the freedom from Jim Crow, from the Jim Crow censures. But for Edna, the price of freedom was walking away from her life and from Americas, who could not come to New York, at least not yet. It also meant breaking her promise to her parents, the one to stay with her sister. Edna never took decisions lightly. She was a woman of few words, a listener, a reader of silences, of the pauses that came between thoughts and ideas. Living in the South, she had learned to decipher absence, fill in the gaps, read smiles and smirks and hand gestures, and then wait for clarity. She would do that now, take her time, weigh the pros and cons of staying in Savannah and enduring its codes, or following the thousands of other migrants and becoming a nurse in a TB hospital. Growing up, Edna had seen the ruin that tuberculosis unleashed on the nearby Black communities of Yamacraw and Frogtown, how easily it spread and how indiscriminately it killed, leaving parents mourning children and children mourning parents. It was a monster illness, unforgiving, undiscerning, and savage. If she got sick, who would care for Americus? And if she stayed, what would their future look like? For weeks, she stood at the crossroads of her life, on one side, Savannah, with its familiarity and its Jim Crowism, and on the other, New York City, with its nursing career and disease. Every night, she heard the summer droning onwards, its sound of cicadas and mosquitoes and neighbors laughing, paying her no mind as she turned her thoughts inward and prayed asking God for a sign, something to point her in the right direction. Then, one day, she heard the words of Matthew 25, 14, 30, the parable of the talents, where Jesus tells his disciples not to squander their God-given gifts, but instead to use them in the service of God. Yes, she would wager her life, gamble it on the whims of a vicious disease in the wards of a municipal hospital. She would cast aside her fears and worries and head to New York, or like her father, she might save people and forge a new path. She began to make plans for Americus, assuaging her guilt with future thoughts. Once settled, she would bring her to New York, the way Annie had done with RV and Amy with her other sisters. Hmm. That is such a beautiful passage. And it, for me, it underscores what a talented writer you are. <laughs> So thank you. Thank just, you. I mean, that's obvious from your writing. And this Edna's story is kind of woven throughout the entire book. She's like, she's one of those characters that just sort of her narrative is part of the narrative of the, you know, the tapestry of the book. And then you have the narrative of the doctors and the researchers and mm -hmm. their relationships and their struggles and everything they went through of the the politics of drug discovery and clinical trials which hadn't we would really hadn't had clinical trials before so this was this was you know like terra incognita and everyone was trying to find their way in the dark in some ways and edna's story just illustrates the struggles and i think a lot of people might be shocked a lot of nurses listening might be shocked what you discovered or maybe other people knew already, but I didn't know that the American Nurses Association barred Black nurses from membership till 1949. 
And a lot of pressure had to be brought to bear for them to allow black nurses into the ANA. And the ANA has since been reckoning with their past. Were you were you surprised yourself at what you found about the nursing profession in the course of reading about what these women went through? That is a very, very loaded question that would take hours to answer. But yes, in short, I I am not a nurse. Mm-hmm. I had I've been I've been doing medical editing. My experience with nurse and nurses um, came from my mother died of cancer. She was sick for two years, and so I had this extraordinary experience with nurses. And then I went in an effort to try and combat my grief. I walked into um, Boston Children's Hospital and volunteered on the pediatric bone marrow transplant unit for three years. Wow! And so I got to know nurses in that context at work, working on a ward where they got to know these families in a very intimate manner in the way the nurses got to know the families and patients. Well, not so much the families, but the patients at Seaview because the average stay was anywhere from a year to three years. Mm -hmm. And so I had no idea that the nursing profession had been so fraught um, that in, in you know, people who are not in these professions in nursing and in medicine think that, oh, well, you go into this, and of course, everyone wants the same thing. We want, you know, we hope that doctors are going to take care of us and nurses are going to take care of us, and that the organizations for which they work are going to look at the good, the good of humanity before they start to not. And so the first shock for me was wait a second, they were allowing hospitals to remain understaffed because they didn't want to hire black nurses. How can this be? How do people think this way, right? And and I don't mean it like how they think this way. Of course, they think this way because we knew, I knew what was going on. I knew the history of Jim Crowism and I knew what was happening down South. But as I say, I didn't think that the country that extended, you know, that drew lines around uh, waiting rooms and bus stations also drew them around hospitals. And so I was shocked to find that the organization that ran the country, the American Nurses Organization, was barring Black nurses from joining. I mean, once I, once I discovered that and then started to do the deep dive, nothing shocked me afterwards. Mm. I mean, it became more appalling, but mm-hmm. it wasn't any more shocking because the, the shock happened on that high level and then becoming appalled afterwards and then indignant and then enraged and then oh my goodness what is happening and that narrative thread was very important for me to weave into the story that that is such an important part of the narrative and your discovery of this history of the profession the history of tuberculosis drug discovery and the experience of these nurses is so historically important. When we come back from the break, I want to talk more about that and some about your writing career and a little bit more about TB in general and what you learned along the way. So hang in there and we'll be right back with the second half of episode 454 of the Nurse Keith Show with author Maria Smilios. (music) 
And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Maria Smilios, the author of Black Angels, the untold story of the nurses who helped cure tuberculosis. And Maria, this is your first book. And like you said, you were writing for Springer. And just as a disclosure, I also write for Springer Publishing. But you've also written for The Guardian, American Nurse, um, Dame Magazine, um, many other publications. So is your career, has the arc always been writing? Has that been kind of where you focused your your professional life? I always wanted to be a writer from the time I was six. I just fell in love with words. I loved to arrange them on a page. So they made pictures. And one thing or another kept hampering that possibility. And I ended up going to graduate school. I was doing a PhD in religion and literature. I was studying death and dying and American literature and modernism. And then I decided I wasn't going to do a PhD because I didn't want to write a dissertation. I wanted to write like this. And I ended up getting a teaching job, teaching at an all-girls school, all-girls high school. I, I was teaching English. I loved what I was doing. And I had started to write on the side. And then I had a baby. I had my daughter. And I couldn't, I couldn't teach full-time. It was just too demanding. And I was able to work for Springer full-time at the time. And, and it allowed me a freedom to work from home before like COVID work from home, right? And that's that's what I had been doing for years. And then I had started writing for those publications because my daughter was young. I couldn't, I originally wanted to write fiction and I, I couldn't sustain being in the world of somebody else and also being in the world of a toddler mm-hmm. and also being in this medical world. So I wasn't, you know, it, I, I had been writing these articles. They were small articles. And then I, I discovered this line that led to this Pandora's box that led to this story mm-hmm. that took me eight years to write. Um, eight years, right. Because you said years. 2015 was the beginning yeah. and it was published in September of 2023, very recently. Yeah. And again, I just, I have to go back and just say what an amazing book it is and how well-written it is and how I can't wait for your next book. And you're probably like, oh, no, <laughs> um, no, it's really an incredible book. And I, I really want to make sure people know about it. So I'm going to do my very best. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, TB, like you said, attacks every part of the body you can possibly name. Mm-hmm. We, we mentioned bone, spine, brain, tongue, kidney, etc. So, you know, it's it's a it is an equal opportunity disease and it is still an issue all around the world and now we have drug resistant TB and we have mm-hmm. extreme drug resistant XDR TB and while we have it under really good control here in the United States to a large extent and I was doing some public health work in TB very recently earlier this year I believe you're you've been involved in supporting some organizations that are working on TB in other countries where it's much more deadly and prevalent what what are you doing in the TB world right now so when the book came out, um, but let me just rewind a second. Um, mm-hmm. The author, John Green, who wrote Fault in Our Stars, became a TB advocate a couple of years ago 
when he went to Sierra Leone and saw this little boy who had tuberculosis and he just thought to himself, why is this happening? And he came back and he became he became an advocate for tuberculosis. Um, I gave a talk at Hopkins in June, Johns Hopkins. I met a doctor there who was working with Doctors Without Borders in Sierra Leone. I gave a, a talk. She was the keynote speaker after me. We hit it off. She loved this book. She said to me, these Black nurses are actually, the, they're alive. They are working in Sierra Leone under the conditions in which you describe. And so I said to her, the book had not come out yet. I said, how can I use my platform to do something good? Because I do believe that if you're going to put out a book like this, where the disease is still ravaging, and you have, as an author, you have the capacity to make a difference, do it. And so she said to me, I'm going to put you in touch with some people. And John Green, you know, she said, we started talking and I kind of made a joke. I said, we should do authors against tuberculosis. Mm. And she took this idea and kind of made it happen. And so when the book first came out, the day that it was released, that week, the United Nations had their high level tuberculosis meeting. And I was part of two different panels with John Green, a woman named Vidya Krishnan, who wrote a book called The Phantom Plague. She's from India. And a woman named Honda, oh God, her last name just eluded me. It flew out of my brain. She okay. wrote a book called Stigmatized. She's from Mongolia. She contracted tuberculosis at 15 and was completely ostracized. She tells this story and it's harrowing. And so the four of us sat on this panel and we talked, you know, the TB Alliance in New York had hosted it and we talked to people about it. And then we did an evening event in conjunction with uh, NIU, Wagner School, of, of public health and a couple of the other schools. And we had like almost 300 students show up on Friday night in September to listen to us talk about tuberculosis. And so from there, I started to become involved in talking about this disease to younger audiences, school, you know, schools. I did another talk at Harvard um, and I just speaking to somebody about getting involved more and maybe doing something on the grounds in Sierra Leone hmm. or in in one of these TB heavy burden countries. But I'm just right now that the best thing I think I could do is just keep talking about this disease and keep telling people it's relevant because when I would tell people I'm writing a book and the disease is tuberculosis, people would say to me, why are you writing about that disease? It's it's cured. We don't have to worry about TB or it's not so bad. It's just a coughing disease. They have drugs for it. I realized all these myths surrounding the disease, and and now it's on the rise again after COVID in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of risen in Seattle. It's risen in New York City, and the multi-resistance tuberculosis is coming into the country because we are not helping countries by giving them access to a full drug. So what happens is people cross the border. You know this and have multi-resistance tuberculosis. We treat the ones who are act who have the active TB at the time, but we don't know about the ones who have latent tuberculosis that might become active in a few months, or the symptoms haven't presented themselves yet. Exactly. And that, that, that is one of the more monstrous parts of this disease, that it doesn't come on like plague or smallpox with, you know, pustules and, you know, you're, you're burning up with fever in two days. 
it could be months before you get your first symptom. And it but you are decades. walking around, yes, mm-hmm. contagious. Um spreading this spreading this disease if you have active TB with no symptoms yet. Mm-hmm. Um it's very akin to COVID. You know, it spreads fast, it spreads easy. Um, the microbes multiply. I think one doctor told me in a month you can have a billion TB microbes mm-hmm. in, in your body and not have a symptom yet. And so people with multi-resistant tuberculosis are coming into the country because we won't give drugs to the countries that have TB heavy burden, you know, populations that are accessible and affordable to get rid of this. Mm-hmm. So it's this kind of endless cycle. And I'm, you know, I hope that through this book, I could bring awareness to that, but also bring awareness to these nurses who had been erased from history. These women who did so much and sacrificed so mm-hmm. much, their legacy is nobody knows about it. And mm-hmm. so that's my other hope is right. that can keep spreading it and talking about it and, and giving them the recognition that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Many of whom died from tuberculosis. So, you know, we you're you're giving us an example here, you're giving listeners an example of when in the course of your life you discover something that just opens your mind and opens mm-hmm. your heart and all of a sudden something becomes central to your life and central to your life's purpose and this i can hear the passion in your voice for for advocating for people with this disease while also trying to give the historical context because i think the historical context is very important in this country around race i mean there there's so many different different threads to this story and i was wondering if you might want to read us one more passage before we um wind down do you have another passage you'd like to read so this passage is a little bit um more about hands-on nursing and the types of jobs that the nurses had to do it wasn't just doing bedside nursing it was also they were responsible for you know linens and and then washing the bodies and this is the second nurse in my book the second main nurse in my book missouria she had come from clinton south carolina uh, by way of howard university and it's in a chapter called in the business of dying missouria knew all about lives collapsing there was one in front of her with his face frozen and his eyes flung open the motionless pupils catching flecks of sunlight he was young in his early 30s and pre-tuberculosis, his life had been spent under the hoods and bodies of cars, Fords, Plymouths, Dodges, and Chevys, his nails slick with oil and grease from changing spark plugs and steering fluid and turning valves on carburetors and shock absorbers. But now all that was gone, finished in an instant under the blue-gray light of daybreak. The young man called J.R. began choking that morning while Missouri was filling out her nurse's notes. She heard the sounds, those great guttural noises of tuberculosis brandishing its power and demanding its price. Dropping her pen, she rushed to his bed, joined by another nurse, and the two women worked quickly, pulling him upright. They tried to calm him, but he was inconsolable. He thrashed and flailed, sheets twisted, and his mouth made grotesque shapes, trying to clear the blood and mucus clogging his airway. The other men on Ward 64 sprang up in bed, and watched the blood from his throat ooze from his nose and splatter from his mouth. They saw his face turn shades of blue and his eyes grow wild and unfocused. And from him came a sound, 
a primal half-human, half-animal noise. Then J.R. went limp. Three years into her job, Missouria was surprised by few things. She'd managed to adapt the rawness of the men's ward to the crass and body language. She'd learned to ignore the flaring tempers and even the racial slurs. But she could not reconcile those who died alone, without family, whose bodies were unclaimed and unmourned, sent to Potter's Field, the graveyard for paupers. When it came to dying, some nurses were more practical than others. They didn't think too long about death. They came in, cleaned up, washed the body, filled out the paperwork, and ready the bed for the next person. To them, dying was just another part of life, another aspect of the job. We're in the business of dying, one nurse had said. Missouria saw things differently. Death, she believed, was a hallowed part of God's broader plan for eternal life. But at Seaview, his plan was often difficult to see. Here, death didn't come quietly, draped in the garlands of holiness. Here, it was crude and ugly and made people gag and vomit and bleed. It turned last breaths into terrifying acts, undertaken in front of people who made morbid jokes about one another, who laughed at how old Joe wasn't going to meet St. Peter, or how Maurice from bed 12 was looking gruesome, or how Harry's bridge days were over. Here, men hawked one another daily, watching who slept, who ate, and who used a bedpan. They counted the visitors who showed up and how often. They kept secret notes of vitals and sputum counts, and then traded information, taking bets on who would die first and how. Quote, Richie's going to starve to death, end quote, and Mr. Albert's next. Mm, beautiful and harrowing. It's right. I remember that passage very well. And what really, it didn't shock me, but just what I marked how all the patients watched one another because there was just bed after bed after bed after bed. So when someone was hemorrhaging and, you know, they were bleeding out and breathing their last breaths and flailing around, all the men were watching. And, you know, that that alone, you know, that kind of suffering, even though they covered it with bravado and and humor and, you know, gallows humor was it's it's just hard to even imagine. And I know there are hospitals like that all around the world, but you just you describe it so well. So, you know, we have the we have the patients, we have the nurses, we have the doctors and the researchers, and all these threads you weave together so beautifully. And I just, you know, it's such a wonderful book. And I think it's such an important book. And I, we need to wind down and I'm, I'm sorry. Cause I could, we could talk for a much, much longer. I know it's, it's, yeah, and, it's so lovely. And as a writer, I have so many things I want to ask you, but I have four quick questions that I ask all my guests. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. These are just, this is a whole nother realm. So are you ready? Are you willing to play along with a little, um, rapid, yeah, let's do rapid it. response questions? Okay. Let's go. Right. Yeah. So the first question is, how do you define success personally or professionally? I think success is if you could wake up in the morning and look forward to what you're doing. That's good. Yeah. Who could ask for more? Okay. Second question is, could you name or describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life and moved you? They could be living or dead famous or someone none of us would ever have had the opportunity to know about? Oof, that's tough. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the first person I would think about is my mom. Um, She 
taught me to to dream big, to love words, to find joy in the small things in life. But I also have to add my daughter. My daughter, mm-hmm. when she was born, just I wanted to be a better person and I wanted to make the world a better place for her. Well, I think you've set a really good example for her. Just Thank saying. you. Um, and I only know a little bit about you, so I'm sure there's even more. And I'm sure she's a wonderful person. Now, the third question, the penultimate question, this is a tough one for writers, and I have a lot of writers mm-hmm. on the show. I usually ask for a book or movie that's had a major impact on the way you think, the way you live your life, the way you approach your work. And if that's too hard because you're a writer and you've probably read, you know, countless books, you could also go with recommending a book that you feel like an audience of nurses would, would really be moved by. So you can go in either direction. Oh, goodness. Um, This is going to sound odd. As okay. I have to, I have to answer this two books. Okay. Um, I love Dante, you know, um, Inferno, mm-hmm. Purgatorio, Paradiso. I, I love the way the verses, I, I, I love the book. I, mm. I would take it with me on a deserted island, but probably most people are not going to sit back and be like, I'm going to take day to the I'm beach. Gonna take, I'm going to um, take the Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take the Inferno with me to the beach and lay here and look at this water and think it's about good, the Inferno. It's a good um, summer read, you know. <laughs> It's a great, yeah. Um, I think one of the books that really moved me, when I started writing this book, I had a stack of books. There were 10 books on my desk. One of them were Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Mm-hmm. One of the most extraordinary books I have ever read, hands down. The prose, everything about it is is above and beyond. And the second book is Virginia, Virginia Woolf to the Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's a book that nurses should read, that that you asked me, it's John Green's The Fault in Our Stars. Oh, yeah. It's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. Um, mm. I, I need to put that on my short list. Yeah. My, yeah. my daughter just read it. I mean, it's a young adult book, but it is, it is, and the movie is amazing. So mm. thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Those are great. From Dante's Inferno to The Fault in Our Stars. Okay. <laughs> Fault in Our Stars. Right. To, you know, the more simple books like, you maybe, know, I don't know. A beach maybe, read, like crawdads. <laughs> right. Maybe um, a, good, a better question now would be, um, what book would you bring with you to a desert island? So I might have to work that question in. Um, but thank, thank you for that. So the last question is, if you were named queen of the world tomorrow, what's one of the first things you would want to do to improve the lives of your subjects, bearing in mind that you would have ultimate power so you could do anything you wanted? But what would one of your first acts be as queen of the world? Health equity. Mm-hmm. Tell, me, tell me a little bit more. I would, I want everybody to have access to health, to, to, to good doctors, to good hospitals. I don't want it to be something that if you live in this zip code, you are really lucky because you have a good hospital there. But if you live five blocks down in a different zip code, the hospital that you have isn't so good. Or if you have X amount of money, you can go here and the ones who don't have money go there. Mm-hmm. Um, or you don't have the money or the 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 means to be able to get, a, for example, a mammogram in four months period of time and you have a lump on your breast and you have to wait. But if you had money, you can go and pay for a mammogram the next week. Mm-hmm. Um, I want children to be able to have access to pediatricians, to eye doctors, which stuff is that's not covered by insurance. 
doctors, dentists and eye doctors. I would want people to have preventive medicine, to have health education, you know, to talk for people to know that, hey, you know, there's really good ways that you can cook this food. And you know what? You don't have to worry if your back is starting to hurt because you can actually see a doctor before you become crippled, you know, or guess what? You could just go for acupuncture because it makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. And what I think we have now is catastrophic medicine. People wait till they can't move to go see a doctor because they don't have the money. They don't have the means. It's not accessible. I lived in Queens in an area where we had one hospital, Elmhurst Hospital, because mm-hmm. they closed the other hospital. That, that was COVID ground zero. That is That hospital, if you walk in, you will wait for 12 to 14 hours. Mm. And so it's from health equity across the board. It's not just getting care. It's the preventive care. It's access to, everybody should have access to a good doctor. Mm. Nobody should should have to say, I have to go to this clinic and there's one doctor who's seeing, uh, you know, a hundred patients and the person is burnt out or they dismiss you. See, we can hear the passion behind all the energy you put into this book. So you would be a fair and just queen. And I bet everyone would get a copy <laughs> of you. the Black Angels too. <laughs> they would. So they they would. would. And the Black Angels would also have their own museum. They would. In my world, they would have all the accolades that they deserve and they would be standing firm. I mean, they would be standing with all those accolades hanging around their neck. Hmm. So yes. Well, Maria, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. Again, the book is amazing. I highly recommend everyone read it. And I appreciate you being here and sharing this time with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. It's fun. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com or on any app where you happen to be listening. If you need personalized holistic career coaching for your nursing career, check out nursekeith.com and Nurse Keith Coaching. Mention the podcast and you get 10% off your first coaching package. We're proud members of the Health Podcast Network, which you can find at healthpodcastnetwork.com. And we are adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And my new friend and colleague, Maria Smilios, saying arrivederci from... Asheville, North Carolina. All right. Thank you so much, Maria. Thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll catch you on the proverbial flip side.